The views expressed on this program are solely those of the speaker and do not reflect the views and opinions of Centennial Securities. Be reminded that this podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions. Happy Friday! Welcome to the Weekly Investment Podcast, where we discuss the week's must-know investment news and how it affects your money. I am your host, Walter. With the start of school upon us, I am very excited for this week's guest, Certified College Financial Consultant Jeff Warenga. Jeff was the first person in his home state of Michigan to earn this unique designation, and he has extensive knowledge on how to save and invest for a child's education. Jeff also holds the Certified Private Wealth Advisor designation. In this interview, we discuss who can invest for a child's education, where those monies can be spent, and the potential tax benefits for contributing, as well as timelines for investment, and what options there are for money left over for education savings. We mostly discuss 529 plans, those being the most popular account for education savings. Okay, let's crack right into the interview. Hi, Jeff. Hey, Walter. How are you? Good, how are you doing? I'm doing fine. Thank you for asking, and thank you for being on The Whip. It's a pleasure to have you on the pod. Thanks for having me. As an expert in saving for education, when should people start saving for a child's education? As soon as possible. Uh, That old parable about the the best time to plant a tree is 20 years ago and the second best time is is today. So as soon as you are able to, saving even a tiny amount um, can really build and and become an important thing as your child's getting ready for college. But I also recognize that kids are expensive, diapers are expensive. And so sometimes starting off right away just isn't feasible, but as, as soon as you can, even if it's 25 or $50 a month, it can make a big difference. Okay. Let's say that parents don't have the ability to save for education at the moment. Who can start an education-specific account? Could grandparents or aunts and uncles? Yeah, absolutely they can. And actually, I'm, I'm a lucky one. Uh, my parents, when, when our children were born said, hey, we're not going to buy them a bunch of toys and gifts for birthdays and Christmas. We'll buy them a toy and an outfit, but we're going to contribute money to a 529 plan for them. Kids always wind up with a mountain of stuff, and the stuff (laughs) within six months, they don't care about it anymore. They don't fit into it anymore, whatever it is, but having that money contributed to a college account where it can grow, that becomes a really great thing. Now, my kids don't appreciate that at this point as much as I do, uh, but I'm sure down the road they will. But yeah, parents, grandparents, aunts, uncles, cousins, whatever, anybody can set up a college savings plan. I always specifically think of 529 plans because they're the most popular, Uh, but it can be done. Basically, you just need parents to give you the child's social security number so you have information down for the beneficiary and, and off you go. 
Got it. Since anyone can set up a 529 plan for the benefit of a child's education, could you walk us through the timeline of savings and investment of those savings for a newborn through adolescent age and into college? Sure. The younger the child is, the more aggressive you want to be as far as the investments in the in the saving program, whether it's a 529 or something else. So the money you put in there, you want to be in fairly aggressive investments because, you know, for a newborn, you probably have 18 years, give or take, for that money to grow before it needs to get used. And then as the child gets older and a little closer to college, uh, you want to pull back on the aggressiveness because you what you don't want is to have the market take a big dip and then the account take a big dip right about the time you're going to start using the funds. It's much like if you're getting ready to retire, the worst thing you can do is be aggressive, have the market tank at the same time as you're retiring, and you're taking money out as the value of the account goes down. It's kind of a double whammy. So as students get closer to college age, you want to pull back on the aggressiveness, be a little more conservative, just so you don't have that unfortunate dip at a bad time. You know, some people will do a consistent amount of, of saving month by month. Some will do more when say a bonus hits or something like that and they'll they'll add more some will do more in the beginning and then taper off the contributions as it goes wanting to take advantage of compounding and then as it has less of a chance to compound going on using that money for something else for the child or or for anything else there's lots of, of different strategies but i think as long as people are putting money away there's not necessarily a bad strategy could you talk a little bit about the tax benefits of a 529 plan yeah, so depending on the state, you can get a, a tax benefit for contributions. It really varies wildly from state to state. And on some states, you have to go into the state-specific plan. Some states, it doesn't matter which plan you do as long as you put money in. And some states give you no break at all on the contributions. When it comes time to use the money, however, as long as the funds are used for a, a qualified education expense in the It's a pretty broad group of items that are considered qualified. It's tuition, room and board, fees, a computer, um, specialized software if it's part of your program. It it actually gets pretty broad. That, as long as it's used for a qualified education expense, comes out tax-free. So there's no taxes, no penalties, nothing, as long as it comes out for that qualified education expense. Wow. No taxes on contributions and gains? Talk about great incentives to save for a child's education, especially when qualified expenses is such a broad definition, which would include things like trade and vocational school, culinary school, and study abroad experiences, plus much, much more. Okay, so we've established how education savings plans operate. What advice do you have regarding how to talk about the cost of education with an aspiring student? and why that conversation is so important. I can talk about what I did with my kids. So I, my, my oldest two are twins. They're 16 now. They're just about to start their sophomore year in high school. Uh, we actually sat down during eighth grade, but usually it would probably be kind of between eighth grade and high school that you'd want to sit down and just go through, hey, this is where we are as far as saving for college so that you can set expectations. It's important, I think, for them to know Mom and dad have a little bit of money set aside, but college is expensive. It's going to cost more than this. And so what are they counting on me to do to try to help out with that cost? I always like to point out, and this is from uh, the folks at 
College Board, which they're the SAT folks for anybody who doesn't know. They do a report every year on the cost of attendance of various categories of, of colleges. So they do two-year, four-year public, four-year private, all of that kind of thing. So for their numbers for last year, the published tuition fees room and board on average for a, a four-year public college in-state was 23250 But the net cost to people was 14560 which is still quite a bit, but it's much less. And that's because you get the, the advantage of taking out things like grants scholarships, merit aid, any other thing that would pull the price down. So having that conversation with kids about, hey, we've got some money set aside, but we need you to go out and do the work, do well in school so you can qualify for some of these things to bring the price down even farther. I think that's a, an important conversation to have. Whether it's well received by a 14, 15, 16-year-old child, that's <laughs> an entirely different topic, but at least you can set those expectations and have that conversation and maybe get the ball rolling on a larger conversation of, you know, where do you want to go? What are you thinking you want to do? And start working through all of those. And the reason that I think it's important to do between eighth and ninth grade is those grades, freshman year, first semester count just as much as any other grade. And well, I think there's a, a, an argument to be had about whether grades should matter. The fact is for most colleges and universities, they do. Same with test scores. Those factors not only can impact where you can go to college, but they can also impact where you can afford to go to college. So you might be able to get into a great school, but if they're not really interested in you coming there, they're willing to take you, but you're not the top choice, it could get really expensive because you're not going to have those merit aid or scholarship opportunities that bring that net cost down. Great explanation of how aligning expectations benefits everyone. That net cost number will be eye-opening for some of our audience. Which is why it's so important to have the conversation with your student. Parents need to know that they're not in the savings process alone. And students know that they have some part to play in their options available after school as well. One thing that I've noticed is sometimes there's a real, it's almost parental guilt about, well, my kid wants to go to this school, but we just can't swing it. So we're going to do this, this, and this, and, and cut back to beans and rice and everything we can, even though we can't quite afford this school, that's where the kid wants to go. And so we're going to pay on a second mortgage or whatever to make it so we can afford to send our, our kid there. And I, I think that's where that conversation needs to come in, where you say, look, I know you, you really love this school, but it, it just is too much money. And so we need to find someplace else that maybe you'll be happy and I, that's a tough conversation for parents to have, and I, I get the, the, the guilt or feelings that might come up, but I think it is important because you could really put yourself or your student behind the eight ball if you start taking on huge debt for a school, and especially if it's a, a program that doesn't have a, a great potential for career earnings coming out of it. That's a good point. How a student gets to the next stage in life can be stressful for parents as well as students. So being honest and open about what is possible can help in the decision-making process. Okay, let's assume that someone has a child in eighth grade or is just about to enter high school and hasn't started saving yet. What advice do you have for that situation? Certainly start saving what you can and put it away. Probably will have to be a little more aggressive than somebody who started saving when 
their child was an infant because you, you have to make up some, some ground or at least attempt to make up some ground. The other thing is make sure that you're driving your child toward, hey, look at scholarship opportunities. Look at programs that, where you, you get some credit for working. Um, look at community colleges to keep the cost down for the first two years. There are lots of lots of options there for parents. And the other piece is there are student loans. There are getting to be a greater number of what they call income-dependent repayment plans, where hopefully you're not taking a huge chunk out of you know a, a salary of, of somebody who comes out of college and starts working where they can still afford to live. But that, you know, loans are always an option out there between the, the federal loans and then private loans as well. What resources like websites or books, for example, do you recommend parents and students use to help simplify their options regarding grants and scholarships? I flat out just did a Google search and came up with several different scholarship websites that are out there. And these are really for juniors and seniors, but you can start going in and putting in your, your information, your GPA, SAT score if you have it, various demographic information. And these different websites are basically databases that will help you pick out scholarships you might be eligible for. So scholarships.com, College Board has their own uh, system. FastWeb is one, Scholarship Owl bold.org. There's a ton of them. You can just basically, like I said, do a Google search and, and find a lot out there. Some of them will make you write an essay. Some of them are just demographic information. And it doesn't necessarily, even though I think everybody thinks of scholarships and thinks, oh, that's for the, the valedictorian. There are quite famously some scholarships out there for people who maybe who haven't buckled down in school but have good potential. I, I think the David Letterman scholarship at Ball State is for somebody going into broadcasting who was a C student in high school. Those exist, usually funded by people who went to college without having the best grades in high school and then really succeeded at life. So those kind of things exist as well. I also always recommend the book, The Price You Pay for College, which was written by Ron Lieber. I think it's a really good book. The chapters are fairly short. You can skip around a little bit if it's something that doesn't apply to your child. For example, there's a chapter on choosing an all-girls college. I have three boys. That doesn't apply to me, so I skipped that chapter. The chapters are laid out in such a way that you know exactly what each chapter is about. So like I said, if it's something that doesn't apply, you can skip around pretty easily. So I, I think that's a really good resource as well. Very helpful. Let's say someone is in the position of having money left in a 529 plan. Maybe they overfund it or live in a state where, based on the child's grade point average, they had little to no cost for education. What options are there for those remainder monies? Yeah, that's a great question because that, to me, is always the number one reason why people choose not to save money is, well, I, what are my options when, when we get done if there's money left over? And there are a ton of options. Specifically with 529 plans, they don't expire. So that plan can go on forever. So you could have a, a child whose undergrad is fully covered, but maybe they're going to go to grad school. Or maybe that money is just going to stay in that account, and down the road they're going to have kids, and they can do a beneficiary change and change the beneficiary from themselves to their child. The beneficiary changes are 
fairly broad. It's a qualifying family member, which goes to siblings and aunts and uncles and parents and grandparents and children and grandchildren and, and even broader than that. So those are all options. If somebody wants to take money out, they can still do that. There is a tax hit for doing that for a non-qualified education expense. But there are other, there are exceptions to that rule. You can take money out to pay up to $10,000 of your siblings' student loans if they have some. Famously, there used to be a loophole where CEOs would put money in a 529 plan for themselves, and then it would be used to pay for the Jack Nicholas Golf Academy. They have closed that loophole since, but there are, there are lots of options. I always get the question, too, well, what if my kid gets a, a scholarship? There's the ability to pull money out up to the level of that scholarship without having to pay the the penalty for not taking it out for a qualified education expense. So there's really a lot of flexibility built in there for people who you know wind up not having to use that money. And just recently, they put in the ability to convert money from a 529 into a Roth IRA. Now, there are lots of rules and restrictions on that, but that's just another option that's out there. Interesting. Let's stay on this point. Specifically, how does a 529 accounts balance affect scholarship or aid opportunities? It shouldn't figure in too much to a scholarship. Where it figures in more is in the need-based aid, and that's where we get into the FAFSA form and things like that. Usually, scholarships are a little more prescribed. It's either some sort of grid based on GPA and test scores or some other a little more qualitative measure where you can slot somebody in and say they've earned this amount. The kind of gray area is, to me, I consider it a separate bucket, which is merit aid. And merit aid is more of a school basically saying, hey, we want more of this type of student here, so let's throw some money at them and see if we can encourage them to come our way. Where I live here in, in Michigan, I know several students who have wound up going down south to SEC schools for college because they were looking for certain students from the north to come down to the south, and so they threw a ton of money at them, and money talks. Growing number of schools are requiring FAFSA forms filled out to offer scholarships, even if people assume they're not going to qualify for any kind of federal aid from the FAFSA form, and really it's, it's so they can do data collection more than anything else. Jeff, we have covered a lot of areas regarding saving for education. What haven't we talked about that you would like our listeners to know? I think the biggest thing for me is it's a t tough decision where to go to college based on comfort and feel and then cost and programs and everything like that. And that decision's being made by a 17 or 18-year-old at the start. And it's it's basically like buying a nice used car every year for a 17 or 18 year old and you're hoping that when they come out they're able to be gainfully employed and have this this great runway to a, a great life so i think it's important just to to have those constant conversations with kids about the cost of school and then what kind of program are you looking at doing and what's the career look like for someone coming out of college with a degree in that so you don't spend $250,000 at a, an elite private school for somebody who's going to wind up 
working as a, a nonprofit director and making 45000 a year, which was pro- is probably a, a great cause and a, a, a meaningful job, but maybe the payoff isn't the same as a different career path or going to a, a less expensive school to do the same kind of career. That is sound advice for both parents and students. Now, the rules around saving for education are always changing, particularly when it comes to FAFSA. Would you please consider coming back in the future and talking through those changes when they happen to help keep our audience informed of their options? Absolutely. I'd love to. Great. Thank you very much for being on The Whip, Jeff. Best wishes for a nice Friday, and please have a nice weekend when you get there. Thanks, Walter. Next week, we answer one of your questions. Join us next Friday for that and much, much more. Thank you for listening, and please have a nice weekend when you get there. Talk to you next week.